Church, what is up? It is so great to see you today. And can I just kind of say this because this is the first opportunity that I've had thus far to say this, but hey, Happy New Year. I mean, I'm not too sure how long into January you're supposed to go on carrying on saying that, but seriously, we really hope that the festive season over Christmas has just been brilliant for you. And now as everybody's routine has started to kick back in, we really do hope and pray that you've had not only a fantastic Christmas, but that the start of 2019 has been just tremendous for you as well. Almost getting the wrong years. You can tell it's been a long day, but um, it really is great to have you with us in church. And we're really praying and believing that this year for each and every one of us is just going to be a fantastic Yeah. You know, I'm not too sure how um, New Year has started for you, but chances are some of us have made some resolutions. Some of us have got some dreams. Some of us have got some aspirations about how we want to maybe see the year progress for us. I'm sure that many of us have got an idea about where we want to be at the end of 2019 as opposed to where we are right here at the start. And the crazy thing is, is that whatever dreams you have, whatever goals that you've already set yourself, whatever aspirations that you may be incubating in your heart right now, we're really praying that you get to see many of those come to fruition. But I guess one really genuine question for us all to explore can be this, you know, is there anything practical that we can actually do in all of our lives, non-dependent of what dreams and aspirations and goals and resolutions we've got set? Is there actually some practical things that we can all implement that would actually see us finish the year stronger than maybe in comparison to how the year is starting out for us. That's why we're starting this series and we're in week two right now of Holiday Hangover. You know, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we'd been invited out to this dinner and it was just a roundtable event where we were, you know, unbelievably honoured to be able to spend some time in the company of a bunch of people that were just leading some really big, great churches from around the globe. And we'd not long started and planted this church here at Liverpool One and we were so excited about the future and we kind of, we got this invitation so we travelled out to this dinner and we were so excited, you know, to try and like, try and make the right impression. I'm not too sure what that would be uh, but nevertheless, we were really excited to be there and um, the order of the day was, was a seafood thing. It had like a full-on seafood theme going on 
I don't know about you, but I'm not a huge lover of, you know, like crab fish and lobster and all of that sort of stuff. But hey, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I'm game for trying anything. And um, what was incredible was they kept on bringing all of these seafood platters around. And I don't know if you've ever had, for example, like lobster, but it tends to arrive in this shell and you pick out the meat and eat from it. And it was a great dinner. We had a great time. It was heaps of fun. But right at the end of the meal, when the waiter was in the process of collecting all of the plates, it became apparent to my wife that everybody else had contents left on their plate. And on Emma's plate, there was like nothing at all. And Emma kind of leans over to me and she says, hey, how come everybody else has got something left on their plate and and I've got like nothing? And I'm looking at her and I'm going, well, what did you do with the shell, hon? What did you do with that? And she's like looking at me and she's going, I ate it. And I'm like, you ate the shell? I'm like, that's just wrong. And she's laughing and she's saying, I thought it was really loud in my ears when I was crunching through this shell. No wonder I couldn't hear anybody's conversation around the table. And then like, you know, this awkward moment kind of arrives in her thinking. Now she sees the waiter coming to collect all of the plates. And now she doesn't want to be the only one on the table with an empty plate. So she looks at me and she's like, give me your shell. And I'm going, no, I'm not going to give you any shell. And she's like, don't let the waiter see that I've eaten my shell. I'm like, listen, you dug this situation for yourself. You can just man up and you can take the consequences. I'm not giving you no shell. I mean, seriously, there is proof right there. It's like, you do not mess with my wife. She will eat you up and spit you out. No problem. Seriously. She is a woman that you, you do not mess with. You know, just staying on the whole kind of like lobster theme for a moment. We were in a place called Chicago in America, and there's an aquarium there called the Shed Aquarium. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's one of the largest aquariums on the planet, and it's got like 4.2 million gallons of water split across a number of tanks. And there is just like the greatest array of just sea creatures contained within this aquarium. It is absolutely phenomenal. But when we were visiting a couple of years back, one of the things that was really interesting was that they had like this brand new star attraction that had just arrived at the aquarium. And it was a bright blue lobster. I mean, it had been caught by a fisherman on the coast somewhere. And these things are so rare. I mean, it was just incredible. It looked like that it was something off Finding Nemo. It was unbelievable. Bright, bright blue And it had been caught, and apparently it happens as a result of some kind of really weird genetic mutation. And there's like a one in two million chance of this actually happening. So when the Shed Aquarium heard that one had been found, they literally, they had it flown over and they were able to kind of like look after it. And it became a huge exhibition in the aquarium. And it was kind of like unbelievably beautiful. And then at the same time, unbelievably weird. It was just like the craziest thing. But... What's so interesting was looking at this bright blue lobster, because most people might know that lobsters tend to be like brown in colour. We think that they're red or orange, but actually they go red or orange when you cook them. But on the seabed, they're like a brown, rusty colour. And to see this thing in a colour that it should never have been in was just kind of like an incredible thing to see and be able to take a look at. But not only was this lobster blue, when you look into lobsters themselves, it is unbelievably interesting to see how similar they are, in fact, to human beings just like you and I. 
I mean, seriously, they are so similar, it is uncanny. You see, lobsters, like many sea creatures that reside at the bottom of the ocean, they're really territorial. And what that means is like you can pick up a lobster and take it out of its habitat and relocate it somewhere else in the ocean. And kind of like the first thing that's on its mind is to become dominant when it comes to territory. Like it has to find a new home, it has to find a new space that it can kind of, you know, hunt and gather and collect and make a life for itself. It wants a place where it's able to mate and being able to find a successful breeding ground and feeding ground is so high up on its list. So the first thing it does when you relocate a lobster from one place to another is it goes hunting for a new home. But what's so funny is that if, whilst it's hunting for a new home, it it basically encroaches another lobster or another lobster even remotely gets close to it, the two of them have this full-on standoff. And you probably won't believe this, but it's absolutely true. There are like these four levels of lobster dispute resolution that goes on every time that these two lobsters kind of meet each other at the bottom of the seabed. Now, level one is kind of interesting because what happens is these lobsters, whilst they're out hunting for their own home, they kind of like shoot this chemical at each other. And inside that chemical, there is all kinds of fascinating information that lets its potential opponent know all the details about the lobster it may possibly be about to engage in battle. It lets it know about its size, about its strength, about its sex. It even lets it know about its level of aggression. And it's kind of like able to interpret so much of this data really quickly. In most cases, it enables one of the lobsters to determine that actually fighting this other dude right now, it's not for him. So what tends to happen is at level one of this dispute resolution scheme, one of the lobsters will simply retract and walk away and kind of be like, nah, I don't want to fight you. You're stronger than me. You're tougher than me. I I, I don't want to get involved with you. But if there's not enough information contained within that chemical that's uh, that's fired across these two lobsters, then things start to escalate somewhat and it goes from level one to level two. Now, level two is kind of interesting. It's not a full-on fight. But what happens is these two lobsters, they kind of square up to one another and their antennas are whipping around crazily as things start to escalate and get significantly more tense between the pair of them. But then what happens is like they kind of take it in turns to charge the other down. It's like they have a full-on run at their opponent to sort of see, is he going to stand his ground? Is he going to kind of run away? Is he going to stand it? Is he going to bottle it? Is he going to move towards me? What's he going to do? And they kind of take this in turns at like charging one another just to try and figure out like, you know, how brave is this other lobster going to be? And normally at the end of level two of this dispute resolution, Normally, one of the lobsters would simply retire and walk away and be sort of like, yeah, you know, I don't really want to engage in a fight. This isn't for me. But when there are two lobsters that kind of come head to head and they just can't figure out who's going to win the fight, then what happens is things escalate again from level two and now we move into level three. This is kind of like the moment where things get a little bit more interesting. You might be willing to pay for this on pay-per-view. It's a little bit more feisty because their claws come out 
And what they become intentional about doing now is they want to try and grab their opponent as they start to move towards fisticuffs and have a full-on battle. And what they're intentional about doing is grabbing their opponent and then tail-flipping them so they land on their back. In most cases, what happens at level three is that when a lobster ends up on its back, it tends to feel like the opposing lobster has got the better of them. So therefore, it sorts itself out and it retires and it walks away. It's kind of able in most of cases to differentiate there being a winning lobster and a losing lobster. But what can sometimes happen, and this is just fascinating, when a lobster gets flipped onto its back, there are some lobsters that just can't take no for an answer. They get back up and they fight some more and they get flipped onto its back again. And it gets back up and it fights some more and it just refuses to back down. Now, if that happens, this is where everything goes crazy. It goes MMA, Conor McGregor style, because now they move up to level four in this lobster dispute process. Now, level four is where it gets scary because this is like way more than just fighting and grappling. Now, these two lobsters are going to battle but not with the intent of flipping the opponent over onto its back. Now what they're intent about doing is with claws open, they want to grab a limb, a leg, an eye socket, an antennae of its opponent. And rather than try and flip them over just onto their back, now what they want to do is grab hold, pinch, tail flip their opponent, but without releasing their claws which means that they are now attempting to rip a limb from their body. I mean, this can sometimes even end up in death. Now, the crazy thing is this. For the lobsters that lose, for the lobsters that experience defeat, it's kind of like something massive happens within them. There is this crazy change that starts to take place. Because once a lobster has been defeated, almost instantaneously, it no longer has the ability to fight anymore because it's simply not willing. Once a lobster has experienced defeat, it loses all of its confidence. It just doesn't want to fight anymore. It doesn't want to play anymore. It doesn't want to do this anymore, and it just completely starts to give in. After conflict, it loses all of its confidence. Now, this is especially true for previous championship-winning lobsters. Now, hey, listen, just bear with me for a few moments, because if some of you are already thinking like, hey, am I even in church tonight, or is this some kind of weird veterinarian class that I didn't in fact sign up for? Look, I promise we're going to get somewhere in the end. Just, just stay with me for a moment. But if there was like a dominance hierarchy, a, a spectrum that we numbered between one and 10, and if one were to represent like the strongest, most successful championship winning lobsters, the toughest of the bunch, the ones that got all the girls, that got the best houses, that ate out in the best restaurants, and they were deemed to be like the number one, the top dog lobster, with the number 10 at the opposite end of the table being deemed to be the, the bottom dog lobster, you know, the type that maybe was unsuccessful when it came to fighting, unsuccessful when it came to house hunting, unsuccessful relationally, it could never kind of get the girl. Well, for the lobsters that were previously number one or number two lobsters, 
when they experience defeat, this affects them like no other. I mean, it affects them horribly. You can have a championship winning lobster that has experienced nothing but success all of its life. And yet at the point at which it gets defeated just once, even if it then encroaches another lobster that it's previously defeated, that it's previously won in battle, it doesn't want to fight anymore. It doesn't want to engage anymore. It loses all of its confidence. Now, these dominant lobsters, these number one or number two lobsters, when they experience defeat, they have all of these kind of changes that start to go on in their brain. It's absolutely fascinating. There becomes like this massive chemical imbalance because their brain is unable to cope with this change of their social standing. It's kind of like they can't grasp the idea that they used to be a number one, but now they're a 10. So as a result of like not being able to kind of figure out who they are anymore, their brain literally starts to dissolve and it has to kind of reformulate and recreate with all of these new chemicals and neurons flying around its brain as it tries to reevaluate who it is. Now, all of these chemical changes that are going on, its, on, it, on in its brain, it dramatically affects a lobster's posture. Did you even know that lobsters had a posture? I sure didn't. But you see, winning and victorious lobsters, they've got a bit of a confident strut thing going on down at the bottom of the ocean. You know, it's kind of like they're super confident. They're not afraid of anything. They're willing to take on any challenges. But defeated lobsters, well, they're kind of all defensive and withdrawn and isolated. They're all kind of scrunched up. And yet that chemical that causes that postural change is an imbalance of two particular chemicals, one called serotonin, you may have heard of that, and another chemical called octopamine. And what this basically means is that this, that lobsters that have a confident posture, that are kind of stood up straight, shoulders back, head up, eyes looking forward. These lobsters, these number one lobsters, they have a really high level of serotonin and a really low level of octopamine. And yet in reverse, these number 10 looking lobsters that walk around in this lowly postural position, they have a really low level of serotonin and a high level of octopamine. This is because serotonin helps with your posture. You can have a low level of serotonin in your body and you will walk around defeated looking, scrunched up, skulking around at the bottom of the ocean. And yet what also adds to this low postural position is this crazy thing that's in the depth of a lobster, right? It's like this oldie-worldy ancient calculator this inner compass that's weighing up all of, the, all of the time at like a subconscious level. It's figuring out where a lobster would stand in its social environment. So it's interpreting all of the information that's going on around it all of the time and it's feeding this information to its brain and it's letting a lobster know whether or not it's a one or whether it's a 10. You know, just changing subjects briefly for a moment, in sound, the very fact that you're able to hear me speak today in this auditorium is because there is a PA, a loudspeaker system. And this loudspeaker system is able to portray to you the sound that I am speaking 
because my voice is being transmitted into a microphone, which is then being amplified and then being deployed through some loudspeakers and it's hitting your eardrums. Now, in sound, there's something really terrible that can sometimes happen and it's called feedback. And what that is, is it's when a sound is maybe emitted into a microphone, for example, it's amplified and then it's emitted through a loudspeaker system, which in turn then falls back through a microphone, which is then amplified and then comes back out of a loudspeaker system, which in turn comes back into a microphone and it creates this really vicious cycle and it's called feedback. And unless you do something rapidly to deal with that feedback, it's almost impossible to get out of that vicious cycle to the point in which it can damage loudspeaker systems almost to the point of destruction. But it's exactly the same with these lobsters. They experience this really super vicious cycle of defeat because this is what happens, right? They experience defeat and then as a result, of the chemical changes and imbalances now going on in its brain, its posture is low. It's walking around like a defeated lobster. And now, because of this inner counter, this inner calculator that it's got going on deep within its soul, that's interpreting all of the information that's going on around it, now when its posture is low and it comes across other lobsters who now interpret this lobster as maybe being a 10 on the hierarchy scale or on the scale of dominance, that information is fed back into the lobster, which then confirms what the lobster suspected. And it thinks like, you know what? I, I am an absolutely rubbish lobster. I am like a 10. I mean, I just suck as a lobster. So now it feels so terrible about itself it then already knows it's been defeated, so its posture is low. It's got this chemical imbalance between serotonin and octopamine going on in its brain. It's got this counter working against it, telling him all the information about what everybody else thinks that he is, which then confirms what he suspected. And it becomes this vicious cycle of defeat that causes its posture to stay low. But we too are influenced massively by the levels of serotonin in our body. You know, serotonin, when our levels are low, it's linked to depression, it's linked to anxiety, and it's linked to a lack of confidence. Do you know what else is fascinating to me? We too, as human beings, have got one of these hidden counters, one of these inner calculators in the depth of our soul, way hidden in our subconscious beneath all of our level of thought and process that's constantly evaluating all of the information that comes into your world. And it then interprets that information to you and it lets you know where you are on a social scale or a hierarchy of dominance. It's feeding this information to you to let you know whether you're a one or whether you're a 10. And then as a result of that counter and that clock working like a master control system in our bodies, it lets you then believe whether you're a one or whether you're a 10. This is why when we go through moments of defeat and struggle and trials and difficulties, why our posture falls low. And this is why we then act exactly the same as these lobsters. It's like we experience defeat, we experience conflict, 
And then we lose all of our confidence. Then we don't want to fight anymore. Even for things that we valued so much previously and wanted to fight to the death for, now when we've gone through just life and things that have been thrown at us and cards that have been dealt to us that we didn't see coming, never because our confidence has been so badly affected, we, we, we just don't want to fight anymore. Now we don't want to go for our dreams anymore. Now we don't think that our future is going to be better than our past because we've got a low posture thing, we've got low levels of serotonin going on and our confidence is absolutely rocked. Our posture drops. Anybody know what it's like for your face to drop, for your body language to drop? For us to kind of walk around in life just scrunched up as though we're hung over? We kind of become more ridden with anxiety and stress and tension. We often feel like we can't cope and handle the pressures that life put on us, and yet it starts when our posture drops. You see, low levels of serotonin affect your posture massively. Not only is it linked to anxiety and stress, but when your levels of serotonin are low and your posture then drops, you will actually end up living your life with less happiness, more pain, increased illness, and even, check this, a shorter lifespan. You see, when you see yourself as a 10, you don't ever see yourself as being able to move upwards from that point on. And yet, when the serotonin is flowing and your posture is upright and strong, you feel like you can take on anything and anyone. You can tackle any challenge. You can go for your dreams. I mean, you can do that. You're the guy. You're the girl. So what can we do about our postural position if it actually affects us so much? Because, hey, let's try and bring this thing home and make this thing land today, right? The reality is, is that there are many different areas of all of our life that can go on, that can often leave us feeling like we're just a 10. Like we know that we're not a one. We know that we're nowhere near being a two. We're never going to get there. Maybe previously you feel like you've been there. You've enjoyed success before, but now it just feels to you like you're never going to get there again. I mean, maybe you're the dad that's just totally screwed up with your son or totally screwed up with your daughter. And you're just like, you don't even know how things got the way that they now are. And you're devastated about how they now are. I mean, you've tried to fix it, but it just doesn't work. And now you've lost all hope that things could ever be better relationally as a parent between you and your child. Because things have just gone in a way that you never saw coming. And that leaves you feeling defeated. It It leaves you feeling like your posture has dropped and your confidence after that conflict has completely gone. Maybe it's not a parental thing. Maybe you're the business guy. Maybe you're the entrepreneur. Maybe you're the entrepreneur that knows exactly what it's like to dream big and go for your dreams, have grandioso expectations and huge aspirations, but Something happened in the business that you just didn't see coming and it blindsided you. And even though you used to have so much passion and zeal and excitement for the future, now you just feel like, well, I've lost all of my confidence. There's no way I want to ever take another stab at that. I really don't think that it's possible for me to make that worse work again. So now after the conflict, you completely lose your confidence. Maybe you're the woman in church today. And you've just been through some stuff relationally that's just not fair and it's just not right. And 
stuff's gone on and he said and he did and you said and you did and it just feels to you like your whole relational world is completely broke. But what harms you the most is feeling like it will never get any better. It feels to you like you're a 10 relationally right now and your confidence is completely gone so your posture is completely down and you've got this inner counter on the inside of you reminding you all of the time how devastating your relational position in life is and That just confirms to you what you'd suspected, that you're not a one, you're just a 10. And you end up stuck in this vicious cycle relationally. Like, will I ever meet anybody? Will I ever meet anybody that treats me right? Will I ever meet anybody that loves God and loves me also? Will that ever come right for me? And because of what you've experienced in the conflict, now you have no confidence, your posture's dropped and you just feel like this is never going to get any better for me. Which is why. When the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 35, made this statement, it brings it all home to us when he said, so make sure that you do not throw away your confidence for it will be richly rewarded. And this author, he's writing to a bunch of Christ followers just like you and I. And he was encouraging them saying, hey, listen, Whatever trials may come your way in this next season, whatever challenges that may come across your path, make sure that you hold on to your confidence. Because I think he knew exactly that after conflict, the greatest temptation is that you throw away your confidence. And maybe he wouldn't have explained it this way with regards to serotonin and octopamine, but the fact remains the same. When your confidence is gone after conflict, you don't feel like moving anymore. You don't feel like fighting anymore. You don't feel like making progress anymore. So how do we, as followers of Christ, find confidence after conflict? What what, what can we actually do? Like practically, what can we implement into our life that will increase our confidence when maybe you've experienced a portion of defeat in one particular area of your world? How do we stand tall even in the face of adversity? Well, what's really interesting about serotonin is that you can practically increase your levels of serotonin by building into your life a framework of good, healthy, daily habits. Now, here's the thing. There's loads of like self-help that you can get out of a book and I don't really wanna focus the end of this message on that sort of stuff. I wanna try and center this around our faith life. But you've just got to understand that all of our bodies, they're they're like these well-rehearsed orchestras that place a demand on every different part to play. It's right time, in tune, at just the perfect moment. And these reliable formula, reliable habits massively help the chemicals in your brain just stay balanced. Even things like, check this, even things like waking up at the same time every day can massively help your levels of serotonin. Apparently, it's not actually as important that you go to bed at the same time every day, but just having a set designated time that you wake up every day and that being like the first habit that you employ into your world can massively help your posture in life. I mean, it kind of makes sense though, doesn't it? Because you ever noticed how when people say, you know, the happiest children 
are the children that are in a routine and they've got this stable framework around their life. They've got a, a bedtime and a bath time and a bottle time. It's, it's kind of the same for us. Like our bodies thrive when we build into the fabric of our life these healthy habits. In our house with our youngest son, we've got this one little bit crazy um, habit that we've implemented now for I don't even know how long but I think that as parents Emma and I with all of our three boys we want them to grow up super confident sometimes it annoys us because it's like borderline cocky but but we kind of don't mind that a little bit we, we want them to be confident as they grow up in life and with our youngest son right now one of the things that Emma did when we kind of like redid his room, she put these great big words in massive print on the side of his bedroom wall. And every single night when one of us are gonna go in to do prayers, he says these words that are on this wall. And it's become like a huge joke now where he's kind of like, oh, say it in an accent, you know, kind of like, you know, a different accent every night. But, but these are the words that he reads every single night. He reads this, he says that, I am son of the king. That makes me royalty. Mighty like a warrior. Brave as can be. I know my God is with me. Emma was just telling me, actually, I didn't even know this, but apparently, so like, shh, this is a secret, right? But apparently a couple of weeks back, he, he got into trouble in school and one of his teachers had sort of like said a few things and had made a comment to him and sort of said, you know, like, you're such a waste of space. And his response was, mm -mm, I am a son of the king. That makes me royalty, <laughs> mighty like a warrior, brave as can be. And everywhere I go, and he ends up getting a detention for that. But hey, if you're gonna get detention, let it be for Jesus, right? Okay. <laughs> so every single night, we've got this healthy habit, this routine where it's like, I'm a son of the king. That makes me royalty, mighty like a warrior, brave as can be. And everywhere I go, I know that God is with me. Because you see, the thing is, it, it, it's not what, God says about you that really counts in your life, it's what you think God thinks about you in your life that's really gonna make a difference. It's that that really counts. And if we can teach our children to grow up knowing that no matter what they face, no matter what adversity, no matter what challenge, no matter what difficulty, that they are a son of the King and that makes them royalty, mighty like a warrior, brave as can be, no matter where they go, that they will know that God is with them, in front of them, behind them, to the left of them, to the right of them, then I think that that's gonna massively help their levels of confidence. But maybe that is the reason why when David wrote in the Psalms, in chapter three, verse three, when his whole world is falling apart and it feels like all hope has gone and all his aspirations may never work out while his crazy son Absalom's trying to take his life, trying to take his throne and he ends up on the run. When he prays this prayer, when he's just in a moment between him and God with no one else around him, no audience, no one else following. And he just says this statement, probably I think when you understand how the Psalms were written, probably out of a daily habit of just spending time in the very presence presence of God. He says this, he says, but you, God, like he's making a statement straight away. He's like, nobody else can do what I'm about to say now. Like, God, this can only come from you. I may be a base right now, but you, God, 
You shield me on all sides. You ground my feet. And then I just love what he says next. He says, and you lift my head high. I think he was saying, God, it's you that causes me to be able to stand up straight, shoulders back, head high and eyes looking to you when I don't even feel like getting up and getting out of bed. God, it is you that gives me the strength to stand up straight, shoulders back, head up high, eyes looking towards you, even when everything else may be falling around beside me, even when there may feel to me like there is no hope, even when she's gone and he's gone and the money doesn't work. God, you're the one that lifts me up. You're the one that gives me strength. You are the enthusiasm and the encouragement that I need in the depth of my spirit. And yet it came out of him spending this daily quiet time, this habitual practice in the presence of God. You see, if you want to be able to stand tall before men, it starts by living small before God. When you say, God, actually, I am nothing without you for you are strong and mighty and powerful. And what you do in my life is all glory and credit to you. It's not about how good I am, but God, I'm gonna choose to right size myself in your presence. And I acknowledge that you are bigger, way better than me. So God, I humbly come and make myself small in the sight of the almighty living God, maker of heaven and earth. Because in these moments, when you make yourself small before God, it's then that you realise that you can stand up straight, shoulders back, head up high, eyes towards heaven. It's in these moments when you make yourself small before God, that you see that you don't have to hang your head low anymore, that you can correct your posture. You can see that you don't have to live defeated and weighed down by the weight of your sin and your guilt and your shame anymore. It's in these moments when you choose to be quiet before the Lord and right-size yourself that He lifts you up, that you see that your strengths are stronger than your weaknesses, that you see that your future is greater than your past and that your friends are louder than your critics. So may I implore you, Liverpool One Church, that this year that you build a daily habit into your life and do whatever that might be that's great for you, but find some way, some kind of mechanism where you create a moment where you get small before God. For some of you, it might be out hiking on a mountain. For others, it might just be grabbing a coffee and walking along the beach and just choosing to spend time in relationship with God. For others, it might be grabbing a, grabbing a brew and just staring out of the favourite window you have in the house, watching the world go by. But it's a moment where you choose to make yourself small before the almighty living God.